Father, that is our prayer. Do not tarry long. You are our hope and our salvation. Rend the clouds and come to take us home. We say it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. And that day where we no longer sin, do I long for that day? If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, and I'll do some greetings in a moment, but I want to read the Bible first. So Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, we're not going to unpack every verse. We'll hone in on verse 8, but I want to read the context, so we'll read 6 through 11. Luke writes, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go. Let's pray. Father, we long to see you, as Jamin prayed, rend the heavens and descend and gather us into your kingdom fully and finally. We put off this body of flesh and put on immortality. We long for that day where we see our sovereign, our savior, and our satisfier. But until that day, we live in the present evil age and we need help. We need your help, and so we pray right now. As we've sung to you, we've praised your name. We are hoping that our praises have risen to you and that you are pleased, but now we pray that you would speak to us through the Bible, through your word, and that you would help us to live faithfully, to live for your glory and our joy. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. It's good to see some of you. A lot of you, I have no idea who you are, <laughs> which is also very exciting. Uh, I saw Chad Callahan, well, actually, I saw a large man walk in <laughs> to the door, and his mom said, hey, there's Chad. And I said, where? I just see somebody with something on his chin, and there was Chad. People have changed, uh, but it's a, it's a privilege and a joy of mine to be able to travel some, not much, but to travel to different places, preach at different places, and you get to meet people that you're going to spend eternity with. That's an exciting thing. And then you get to come to a place like this, where it's an added blessing if you get to see old friends. You get to see uh, one of my closest friends. Uh, I like to say the smartest man I know, even though today was the first day he said my name right. Uh, it is, you learn something every day, brother. Uh, Woodyard is how you say my name, so he finally figured that out after 15 years, or uh, yeah, about 15 years of trying to get you to do that. 
but it's uh, a privilege to be back here, a joy to be back here, and to see so many of you, and to see what God's doing. Uh, that's the most exciting thing, is not just to see friends, but to see that God is moving, that God is reaching people, that people are coming to saving faith, to hear testimonies about what Christ has done. That's the most exciting thing, that's the most exciting part of my job, is to see what God is doing in, in the churches around the world and in places like Oak Park. And it wasn't too long ago, it's hard to believe, five years ago, five years have passed since we left here and moved to Minneapolis. And so many things have changed. So we, we left here, and I'd love to take time, but I don't have time to tell the story of, uh, of how that all happened. And we got to Minneapolis and went there in 2012. Uh, but about halfway through our program at Bethlehem College and Seminary, my wife and I started to think about, well, what was next? What we were going to do with our life? Uh, where were we going to do it? Uh, we didn't think or have any dream of staying in the, uh, the north. It's very cold there. Uh, before I got on an airplane to fly down here, it was negative 7 when I walked to the car. Uh, and that's a good day. Uh, so uh, we didn't have any dreams of staying necessarily in Minnesota. We thought we'd move south of Minneapolis. We did, 40 miles south, further south. Uh, and uh, pastor somewhere or teach somewhere, we didn't exactly know. About halfway through our program, you start wrestling with, we've got two years, then we've got to figure out where we're going, where we're going to live, where we're going to raise our kids, what are we going to do for a vocation? Uh, and it was around September or October of 2015 that we started to have conversations with Bethlehem Baptist Church pastors and leadership about the opportunity to plant a church. And that was the last thing on my mind because I'm not very cool. I wear cowboy boots and I don't remember the belt buckle, but maybe you do. Uh, I'm not a hip guy. I, I don't dress cool. I wear sweater vests. I actually think they're awesome. Um, and so they started talking about church planting. And I think, well, that's the last thing on my mind. I don't want to plant a church. I'm not a church planter. I'm, I don't wear skinny jeans and all that stuff. My hair's not nice. I don't have any hair. Uh, but that's what they started to do. They started to talk about planting a church just 40 miles south. Out of, we have three campuses. Uh, we're one of those multi-site places. And so we, uh, we had three campuses, and we were going to plant out of our south campus in this little town called Northfield, Minnesota. And so we start having those conversations. And the moment those conversations came up, I felt this, what, I've used this phrase, I was strangely stirred. I just why am I excited about this? I was at Applebee's, which happens to be my favorite restaurant. You should eat there more. It's fantastic. And so I'm eating there, and a friend brings this up, and I'm strangely stirred inside of me. Why would I be excited about planting a church in a place where it snows 10 months out of the year? Why would I be excited about this? Uh, and then my wife says she's excited about this. And if you know my wife, she's from South Africa. She grew up in Cape Town on the beach where there's ocean and saltwater stuff. And I hate the ocean, but she grew up there where it's always summer. And now she's excited about this. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is weird. This is really weird that we're, she's excited, I'm excited, and maybe we need to look into this. And so we started to look into it. We started to uh, uh, travel every weekend. My wife worked at Bethlehem at the church, and I'd pick her up on Friday, pick the kids up, pick her up. We'd drive 40 miles to Northfield, and we'd stay with some friends, and we'd have coffee and breakfast and lunches and getting to know the people, spending time in the town. And the more we were there, the more we just begin to sense that this, this may be what God wants us to do with our life. 
we were just with the people, and we started to meet people that we actually like. You don't want to plant churches with people you don't like, and so we, we liked them. Uh, they were nice people, but more importantly, they're godly people. They're serious people. They're serious about the gospel. It wasn't just a bunch of young kids that want to go plant a church because that's the, next, that's the coolest thing on the block. These were some really solid people that had been at Bethlehem for a long time. They'd been discipled. And so we're getting to know the people. We're getting to know the town. If you, some of you know a little bit about me. So here's the, here's the sign of Northfield. Cows, colleges, contentment. That's the sign when you pull into the cows, colleges, contentment. And so just, I'm like, this sounds fantastic. <laughs> and so it, and it is. And so we're moving along. And so now the pastors want to bring me to speak at this event in Northfield that they were having. And this was their ploy to get me to sign on. The event was at a farm that had lots of deer on it. And so if we can get him there, and they can meet the owner of this farm, and they're going to let him deer hunt on this place, it's done. And they're right. So I met that guy and uh, met those people and spoke at that event. So we're just doing this for months and months and months. We're, we're meeting with people trying to figure out if this is what the Lord would have us do. Uh, if this was what God would have for us and where he would have us doing that thing called pastoring a church. And sure enough, that is exactly what happened in April of... 2016, we met, uh, we had what we called Super Saturday, it was in honor of election season, Super Tuesday, we had Super Saturday, and if you wanted to be part of the church plant, then you show up that, that meeting, that Saturday, and kind of sign on the dotted line, and so we're there, and I'm waiting at this particular house, and like, is anybody going to show up, is anybody going to come, and people start knocking on the door, and everybody that we thought would show up, showed up, and then even some people that we didn't expect, and we took that as the last kind of straw. This is what we needed to do with our life. And so, what I'm doing for the foreseeable future until the Lord would move us is pastoring a church in a little town called Northfield, Minnesota, about 20,000 people, two colleges, very expensive colleges, the two most expensive, well, two of the most expensive colleges in Minnesota, uh, Carleton College, uh, if you want to go there, it's $64,000 a year, so come on. Uh, if you want to go to St. Olaf, it's cheaper, it's $61,000 a year, so and come there if you want. Um, but it's always kind of got this intellectual feel, but it's very different from what you know in terms of church culture. Uh, it's one of the most liberal towns in one of the most liberal states. Uh, in terms of the type of Christianity that we believe and the doctrines that we cherish, you won't find them anywhere uh, within the town or the region in, in that county. And so we wanted to see a gospel-loving, gospel-preaching church placed in that city. There are 20,000 people, and on a good day, 3,000 people go to church. 17,000 people that don't know Christ, don't worship Him on Sunday, and don't worship Him with the rest of their life, and we want to see that changed. We want to see their eyes open to the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. We want them to see and savor Jesus with all that they are, and so that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing, and that's where we're doing it. And at one level, in one sense, as we're going to see in a moment, every Christian has the same call. There's a way to say that. We're going to unpack it. Every Christian, every person who says that they're a follower of King Jesus, a disciple of Christ, has fundamentally the same call on their life. And that's to be witnesses for Jesus. Ambassadors for Christ. The what of the Christian life is witness. The where, well, 
geographically speaking, vocationally speaking, that's going to look different from person to person. But in one sense, it's all the same for us. It's the world. Witnesses for the world. The water of the Christian life. What are you called to do? What's the most fundamental thing about you as a Christian? You love Christ and you want to tell other people about Christ. Every single person in this room says you're a follower of Jesus. You say you love Jesus. The call on your life is to tell other people about Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a witness. And so I want to look at being witnesses for the world. And we're going to take it from Acts chapter 1. And I know Chase preached through Acts not long ago. But I want to go back to the very beginning. And I want to look at Acts chapter 1. So if you have your Bible open, we're going to look at that text. And you, you will remember that Acts is the follow-up version or follow-up uh, uh, addition to the gospel of Luke. So Luke wrote the gospel and then he wrote this follow-up uh, text, this book to Theophilus. And he says there in the first two verses, in the first book he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He's presenting himself alive. He's talking to them about the kingdom of God. He's telling them about the promised spirit that's soon to come that he had talked about back in John 15. So here's Jesus who has risen from the dead. Here's Jesus who has conquered the grave. You can imagine the excitement in the air. Can you imagine being a disciple there? Jesus has just defeated the grave. Can you imagine what that would have been like? <laughs> the excitement would have been palpable. You could have felt it. They, they think Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that's going to deliver us. He's the one who's going to crush our enemies. And then he's on a cross. <laughs> Maybe we were wrong. We got that kind of mixed up. He's, he's now on a Roman cross. He's not running the Romans out of Dodge. So what, what's going on here? Now he's in a tomb. He's buried. They're meeting, huddled up. Well, what are we going to do? What's the next thing? I thought Jesus was going to fix everything. What's happening? And now he's defeated the grave. He's standing in front of them. He's talking to them. What is he talking about? The kingdom of God. He's telling them about a place where there's no sin, there's no suffering, there's no disease, there's no famine, there's no nakedness, there's no death. And he's a great storyteller, isn't he? I mean, Jesus talks to people, hearts burn inside of him, Luke 24, right? He's talking to people, hearts are burning. And so here is Jesus, risen from the dead, talking to them about the Spirit, talking to them about the kingdom. So the time is ripe. For him to give them their marching orders. To call them to go to work. To call them to go to battle. The, the scene that was in my mind. I was sitting at Chase's yesterday. You know he has his stack of books. His library studying. I have my two little books. That, that's all I need. I can only read a couple at a time. But I'm sitting there and I'm thinking through this. And I'm thinking through the excitement. And Braveheart comes to mind. I love that movie. Mel Gibson, right? You remember he's on the battlefield and he's got his, his army there and they're looking over at that other army and that other army's bigger and badder and they're like, oh no. Uh, they don't have their faces painted quite as nicely but they're, they're, they're there and it's daunting. This daunting task. And William Wallace begins to stir them up with his speech. He begins to stir them up. And I, I kind of imagine Jesus doing the same thing. He's stirring them up. The kingdom's coming, guys. The spirit's coming, guys. I've defeated the grave. Now it's time to go to work. It's time to go after it. It's time to tackle the task at hand. And that's my aim this morning. My aim is to strengthen your resolve and my resolve, our collective resolve, to tackle the task at hand. Do not be fooled. Just because it's exciting here 
There are people here. You're doing things here. Christianity is not flourishing everywhere. The task is not finished. There are billions of people who do not know Jesus. There are millions upon millions of people who if you said the name Jesus, they would ask you who you're talking about. Think of that. Millions upon millions of people. You start to tell them about Jesus and they have no idea who you're talking about. No clue. The task is not finished. This idea of being a witness to the world is something we need to continue to embrace. It needs to get into our bones. And then it needs to open our mouths. So I want to strengthen our resolve to be witnesses to the world. So what I want to do is I want to hone in, particularly on verse 8. We're going to get there in a second. But verse 8, what Jesus says in verse 8, we, we quote it all the time. Uh, it can probably roll off of your lips. It's prompted by a question that the disciples ask in verse 6. And so I want to look at the question and I want to look at Jesus' response. And so if you're looking for a kind of an outline, uh, they ask a question, Jesus answers the question, and in the answer he tells them the what of the Christian life and the where they're supposed to do it. He calls them to be witnesses to the world. So first the question, let's look at verse 6. So when they'd come together, that's the disciples, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. So the disciples are wondering if the time for Jesus to give the kingdom back to Israel is there. The Jewish people have longed for the great and awesome day of the Lord when he would crush their enemies and restore the kingdom. Uh, this makes sense when you go back to the very beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 1, uh, uh, verses 26 through 33, you would find Luke introducing the narrative or the birth of Jesus in very kingly and kingdom terms. He's talking about the throne of David. He's talking about this guy reigning. And so the, the idea of the kingdom is all over the place. And so maybe the time has arrived. Now, it's certain that uh, when we look at this question, the disciples were probably a little bit off. They're, they're probably thinking in uh, nationalistic type of terms. And so we're often quick to criticize them for their question. Uh, that they're just, they don't understand. They don't get it. This question's way off base. But I don't think that's true. I mean, you just look at what Jesus was just talking about. He's talking about in verse 3. He's telling them about the kingdom of God. Jesus is talking about the kingdom. And so it's a very natural question for them. Is it now time? Are you going to bring it now? And so they ask. And... Then Jesus responds. And he tells them that the, the future, the kingdom, it will come. It will happen. It's a sure thing. Don't be concerned necessarily about the unfolding, the exact chronology of how things are going to happen. You don't, you don't need to know all those details, but it's going to come. It's a sure thing. It's a sure thing. Every time Kentucky plays Louisville, I'm going to root for Kentucky. Every single time. Right, Jen? I'm going to root for Kentucky. Every single time. And it's not a sure thing that we're going to always beat Louisville, but I'm going to root for them one way or the other. And so the kingdom, Jesus is saying, it's going to come. It's going to come. It's going to come. Don't fret. But you don't need to concern yourself with exactly how these things will unfold. 
And so he tells them there's a task at hand. So he begins to answer the question. And I do think he's answering the question. He is not pushing their question aside. He's answering the question. There's work to do. The kingdom will come in fullness. So, let's wake up. Let's put our armor on and let's get to the task at hand. And what exactly is the task? That's where Jesus is taking us. He's going to tell us what the task is in verse 8 and where it is. So they're going to ask a question. Is it time for you to restore the kingdom? They're probably a little off in that question, but he answers it in this way. The very way that the kingdom you're longing for is going to come to fruition is as you go and you preach the arrival of the king of the kingdom. And so get to the task at hand. So look at verse 8. The what of the Christian life. We're going to go the what and then the where. The what. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. Once they receive the promised Spirit. We're going to come back to that. We're going to run this way a bit. And we're going to come all the way back to the Spirit. Once they've received the Spirit, they are to be witnesses. Now, it rolls off our tongue. We say that all the time. But what does it mean? Have you ever just stopped and thought about words? Words are important. (laughs) You need to think about words. Words change lives. And so that witness, you've said it. I'm supposed to be a witness for Jesus. What does that mean? Well, I think it means that you're to testify about what you've seen and heard. And I get that from Acts 22. Look at Acts 22. So I want to know what being a witness means. A good guy to ask is the Apostle Paul. And in Acts 22, he tells us how he interprets that call. Acts 22, verses 12 to 15. When it was day, the Jews made a plot. I'm sorry, that's 23. 22. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. Now pay attention. To see the righteous one. The righteous one in Acts is Jesus. To see the righteous one and to hear A voice from his mouth. And then pay attention to the words. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you've seen and what you have heard. So this is different than Acts chapter 9 where you read about the conversion of Saul. And he's recounting it and telling what's happened. The the language in 22 is different. It's telling us exactly how Paul understands his call. The call to be a witness. To testify what you've seen and what you've heard. That's what it means to be a witness. For Jesus, you see something, you hear something, and you go and you tell. And what do the disciples see? Whom have they heard? Who have Christians seen? Who have we heard? The disciples had seen the risen Jesus. They had heard His words. He's sitting there speaking to them about the kingdom. He is risen from the dead. They have seen the King of the universe. They have beheld Him risen from the grave. And now they're hearing Him speak. 
Go tell about what you've seen and what you've heard. You've seen the Messiah. You've seen the servant of God who was put on a cross, who went to the grave, who defeated it and stands before you. Go and tell. That's exactly what the apostles do. You read the book of Acts and they're talking about the resurrection. They're talking about Jesus. They're telling people of what they've seen and heard. You go to the next chapter. You go to Acts chapter 2. You have the Spirit fall at Pentecost. And then you have Peter's Pentecostal sermon. And what does he do? In that chapter, or in his sermon, he begins to preach Jesus from the Old Testament. He begins to quote the, the prophets. And he begins to say that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who is the Lord? Jesus is the Lord. That's what Peter is doing in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. He is proving to the Jews, he's proving to the hearers that Christ is the Lord, that Jesus is the Lord. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Who is the Lord? Christ. Jesus. And that's what the apostles spend their lives doing. That's what the disciples spend their lives doing. They testify of what they've seen and heard, which is another way of saying they preach the gospel. They share the good news of Jesus. If you are a genuine Christian in this room, you have seen and you have savored Jesus. If you have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good in Jesus, you are not a Christian. If you have seen and savored Jesus Christ as the all-satisfying treasure of the universe. You are a Christian. And now you go and you tell. You tell people of what you've seen and heard. You share the gospel. You preach the good news. And we have good news to preach, do we not? Do we have good news or do we have good news? We have good news to preach. We have news of a God who spoke and the world's existed. I was reading Genesis 1 this week and it's amazing. God speaks and everything comes into existence. Do you stand amazed at this God? Do you stand amazed that He opened His mouth and everything came into existence like that? That's amazing. That's the God that we serve. He created us. He created us in His image. And then Genesis 3, we mess it all up. <laughs> we rebel. We commit cosmic treason. And now we stand condemned before a holy God. That's bad news. But it makes the good news very sweet. Because the good news, in light of the bad news, is gooder. That's not even a word. But I made it up. It's better. It's sweeter. Bad news is you've rebelled against the king of the cosmos. And yet, he has sent his son. He has sent one. He has crushed one for your iniquities. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's laid our iniquities on him. It's good news that Jesus comes and lives the life. We talked about it. We sung about it. Clothed in his righteousness. That's not a throwaway statement. Jesus comes and lives a perfect life. And that righteous life through faith in Jesus gets charged to your account. And your sins get laid on him. And his blood washes them clean. That's good news, people. That's good news. Good news you should sing about. Should be on our lips. We sing about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Who has lived for us and died for us. So that if we would turn from sin and believe in him. We would be reconciled to the one true and living God. In that sense, God is the gospel. 
In that sense, the greatest news of the gospel is that you get God through Jesus. Through Jesus, you get a relationship with the very one who spoke the worlds into existence. That's the news we have for a lost and dying world. And so I don't know everybody in this room. And I'm hoping that when you hear that message, it's a message that makes your heart sing. It's a message you've embraced and believed so if you're here and you work and call yourself a Christian, know that today is the day of your salvation. Today is a day where you can repent of your sin and believe in Jesus and be saved from sin and death and hell and one day enter into everlasting joy at the right hand of God. That's open for you. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to pray a particular prayer. You just have to turn from sin and trust in Him. So would you do it? I know any of the pastors or people here would love to talk to you about it. So we come to Christ, and then we pray for boldness. You find the disciples doing that, right? Later on in Acts, they're praying for boldness. Give us boldness. I know we've been arrested. They're beating us. They don't like what we're saying, but give us boldness to keep preaching, to keep speaking. Don't let us shrink back. Let us keep sharing the gospel. Let us be witnesses for Jesus. Let us be witnesses to the world. And when I say that, I don't have in mind you joining the next evangelistic campaign or taking the ne next uh, uh, evangelistic class necessarily. Those things are good things and have their place. I don't think, I'm not thinking in terms of programs first here. Like Chase and the pastors here need to start an evangelistic program so I can be a witness. <laughs> and that has, those things can be useful, so I don't want to undermine those, especially if you're getting ready to start one or anything. Um, but that's not fundamentally what I mean. Instead, what I mean fundamentally, and I get this from uh, two authors from England, uh, where I'm just talking about being ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. That's all I mean. First and foremost, that's what I mean. To be a witness for the world means we just be ordinary people. Yes, we're weird. We believe in a man from Nazareth who died and got up and he went and we can't see him. He's going to come back on a horse and all kinds of things. It's weird. The world, it's weird to the world. But just be ordinary weird people. Go to the store. Get involved in your community. Play basketball. Do whatever people do in Jeffersonville, Indiana. In, uh, uh, North, in Minnesota, they like to ride bikes. It's freezing cold all the time, but they love to ride bikes. They have these bicycles with huge wheels on them that go over snow. It's crazy. A lot of people would do that. But that's what they do. It's just a normal thing. And so what do my kids and I start to do when we moved to Northfield? We started to ride bikes. I was out of breath all the time. But they... They, my kids love it. We ride bikes around our neighborhood. It's just an ordinary thing, right? Ordinary people doing an ordinary thing, but we started to be intentional with it. So we're driving by uh, Marion's house, Marion's house one day, uh, and didn't know her name. We just pulled our bikes up into her yard, and we start talking to her. She's probably 75, 80 years old. She's as old as Bob is, wherever Bob is at. And uh, I love Bob. We used to play golf a lot, so I can... Say things like that to Bob. But so I pull up in Marion's driveway and we, we start talking to her. And my kids, now every time we would ride by her house, we'd say, Hey, let's stop and talk to Marion. Let's stop and talk to Marion. And then one day we're driving by her house on our bikes and uh, my eight year old, uh, Calvin, uh, who some of you remember, he was, four, he was younger when we were here, but eight-year-old says, Hey, Daddy, let's stop at Marin's house. We're going to tell her about, uh, or we want to go see her. I said, Yeah, we're going to tell her about God. And 
and my four-year-old then reminded me that, well, we're going to tell her about Jesus, who is God, right? He's four. And I'm like, yes, you're right. We're going to tell her about Jesus. But I'm wanting my kids to see that we can ride bikes and just be intentional with the gospel. Be ordinary people. Do ordinary things with gospel intentionality. I go to the same coffee shop, even though it's out of my way, just to get to know Julie and Sarah and some of the other people that work in that coffee shop so that I can build a relationship with them and tell them about Jesus. We go to the same grocery store. I look for the same cashier. We're involved at my son's school. Ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. And I don't know what that looks like for you. Some of you like to play basketball. Some of you uh, are involved at schools. You do things. Just start being intentional with the gospel. A good friend of mine that many of you know used to say this. Be people who build relationships that are strong enough to bear the burden of truth. And then share truth. That's what I mean. When I'm talking about being witnesses for the world, I'm not talking about programs. I'm talking about just being people, being Jesus people. People who are ordinary, but are intentional with the good news of Christ. Now, the Bible calls us a lot of different things. Uh, this is Matthew 28, 19 through 20, right? This is the Great Commission. Go and, be, go and make disciples of all nations. This is, this is uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 20. We are ambassadors for Christ God making his appeal through us be reconciled to God. So that's what we're called to. That's the water of the Christian life. And I hope you embrace it with all that you are for the glory of our King and the joy of all peoples. So where do we do this? So that's the next part of the verse. So you be my witnesses, that's the what. Now the where. Look at verse 8 again. In Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So two things, just to note real quickly. This speaks about geography, but it also speaks about crossing cultures. Geography, yes. Jerusalem is the city, and then Judea is the region, Samaria is north, and then the end of the earth. Uh, by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, Paul is in the hub of the Gentile world in Rome. Uh, and so it's moving out, geography, yes. So some of us go to Northfield, Minnesota. Some of uh, my friends have gone to plant churches in places like East St. Louis, Sheffield, England. I have friends in Bangkok, Thailand. We both have friends in South Africa with uh, uh, Chandler and Kelly Snyder. We know people around the world. Many of you do as well. I have friends in Dubai. Uh, we have people we're partnering with in Bat Batam, Indonesia. So we go to every corner of the globe to take the gospel. So geography, yes, but also... We are witnesses to all peoples. We cross cultures. When Jesus moves out from Jerusalem and Judea, he points his disciples towards engaging other peoples. That creates a problem sometimes. They start engaging Gentiles. They have to have a whole council in, in Acts 15 about it. Can we do this? They have to become Jews. They, they're engaging other peoples, other ethnicities, even the hated Samaritans. And finally, all the rest of the Gentiles. So our call is to preach the gospel to every tribe and tongue, every ethnicity, every culture. 
even the peoples that we don't know about. There are something called unengaged peoples. It's not unreached. There are unreached peoples, but there are unengaged peoples. It's different in the world of missiology. The difference is the unengaged, there's no plan to engage them. The unreached are, there's a plan, something's happening. There's a percentage of Christian maybe there, but a very low percentage. The unengaged, no plan. Nobody is targeting them. There are people groups out there that we probably don't even know about. Our call is to be witnesses to every tribe and tongue, the unreached and the unengaged. At our church right now, we're in the, or at Bethlehem, which we just left. Uh, we're in this season called 25 by 25. We're trying to plant 25 churches by the year 2025, and we want to engage 25 unengaged people groups by the year 2025. That's not easy. Some people will die trying to make that happen. But not a hair on their head will perish. And so we want to see that happen. In this sense, this is, this is not exactly what John Wesley meant, but I'm going to steal it from John Wesley. The world is our parish. Anywhere in the world is on the table. Think about it. This time next week, you could live in Northfield, Minnesota. Come on. It'll be warmer in a couple months. But seriously, anywhere in the world, nowhere can close off the gospel. Earthly kings and kingdoms and governments can say, you're not coming. But the king of the universe has already said, I have all authority. And you're to go everywhere with the gospel. You can be anywhere next week. You could live in the Bolivian jungle. How exciting would that be? Or you could live in Uzbekistan. Or you could go to Hawaii. Some people could jump on that one. But there are people all over the world that need Jesus. And you can go anywhere you want to go with the good news of Christ. That's our call. And as the gospel goes, you know what it does? It creates an omni-ethnic people. The family of God. I don't say multi-ethnic. I say omni-ethnic. Omni is all. A people from every tribe and tongue. Not just a lot of them. But every tribe and tongue. And so the gospel goes. And so the where is the world. Now how that fleshes out for me, Northfield, Minnesota. How it fleshes out for Pastor Chase, it's Jeffersonville, Indiana. How it fleshes out for you, I don't know. It'll look different from person to person and from family to family and from church to church. But the call is the same. Be witnesses to the world. And so it's a great time to start asking some exciting questions. Do I need to live in this city? Do I need to leave and move overseas? Should I be part of a church planting team? Lord, show me what it would look like in my life and in the life of the family to be a witness for Christ somewhere in this world. So Jesus has told them the what and the where of the Christian life. But we skipped over an important part of the verse, if you'll look at the very beginning, that I don't want to leave. It's decisive in whether or not this happens. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. If God is not in what we are doing, if His Spirit does not move, and we try to accomplish great gospel things apart from Him, 
we will fail. We will do nothing of eternal value. God, not our intellectual ability, not our evangelistic strategies, not our finances or our marketing savvy, none of that is decisive. God is decisive. If He does not move, nothing happens. And so, we pray. We hope in the God of the universe who makes men and women alive. And we hope in Him and we ask Him to open the eyes of men and women that they would see and that they would savor the work and the worth of Jesus Christ. So may we ask God to show up and move in us and through us for the fame of His name. Not long ago, I finished a book by a guy named J.D. Greer. Uh, it's a book called Gaining by Losing. And he gives a picture of the church. And he uses three ships. He uh, talks about a, a cruise ship, a battleship, and an aircraft carrier. And uh, the church is not a cruise ship. We're not putting our feet up, eating buffets, laying out, getting a tan, coasting through life. It's not a battleship even, even though I thought that was a good, pretty good picture. But instead he opts for an aircraft carrier. And the reason he does that is the church, the collective body, is an aircraft carrier because we meet, we come together, but then we launch out. And we go into our, our neighborhoods and we go into the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, my prayer is that our church and your church and gospel-believing churches around the country would meet to part or they would meet, but then they would part. They would leave. And as we do, we would leave as those who are sent, called to be witnesses for the world. And as we witness to the world and people believe in Jesus, we find that the question the disciples asked in verse 6 begins to come to fruition in part. The kingdom begins to show up as the people of the kingdom bow their knee to the king of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. So much to say. So little time. But I pray that through what has been said, that your word would seek into our hearts, that we would leave here in love with Christ and ready to be witnesses for Christ among all the peoples of the world, for your glory and for their joy. Amen.